Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we'll discuss recent remarks from SEC Commissioner Peirce regarding the mission of the SEC in light of the GameStop hype and review a joint release from three major regulators regarding social isolation and the risk of investment fraud. For our interview segment, we welcome in former NSCP board member Rob Tull to discuss the stress and demands inherent in being a compliance professional that can lead to personal and career burnout and what you can do to reclaim your sanity and energy and increase your creativity for problem solving. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the What's On My Mind segment, where we do a deep dive on newborn babies, sleep deprivation, and compliance. Yes, you did hear all of those words together correctly. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, citing some of the recent events of the GameStop run-up, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce emphasized both, one, the constancy of the regulatory mission of the agency, particularly as technology continues to offer certain innovative solutions and the like, and two, the need for regulators to adapt their rules uh, so that investors and society can benefit from improvements to technology. In her speech at George Washington University Law School's Regulating the Digital Economy Conference, Commissioner Peirce stated that the reaction to GameStop should not be to take actions that serve only to protect the positions of those persons and professionals that were in the financial markets, which, of course, are already going to be very well adapted to existing rules and to the established technologies. Rather, regulators should be a bit more proactive in embracing technology. She, she stated, quote, Embracing rather than frowning upon technology is the only way to achieve our objective of ensuring that investors receive, absorb, and take into account the information that they need to make wise investment decisions. She went on to say that we should welcome the new technology's potential to improve the way markets work and to make them work for more people. Payoff is high. A successful regulatory framework for the digital economy will unleash its ability to empower individuals to build better futures for themselves, their families, and their communities. One of the key takeaways here that I think is really important is that Commissioner Peirce is trying to reiterate a positive message in light of the GameStop event in the sense that the manner in which retail investors interact with the markets and with their brokers and the sources from which they obtain information. All of those things have changed dramatically over the last few decades, 25 years, 30 years, 50 years. If the SEC's investigation of GameStop reveals that there was significant misconduct, of course, it should be addressed. But it would be somewhat disappointing if the inclination to bring enforcement actions or to adopt certain rules distracted from a more important goal, which is trying to make the information and the education that we provide retail investors more accessible, making markets work better for them and being able to put them on a bit better footing should they want to uh, uh, benefit from the same things that many current market participants market participants are also benefiting from. In other news, recently FINRA, the North American Securities Administrators Association, and the SEC Office of Investor Education and Advocacy all provided joint guidance as to the heightened risk 
of financial exploitation associated with social isolation. As the agencies explained, individuals, but particularly senior investors, are becoming increasingly socially isolated, whether both voluntarily or even involuntarily, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the related quarantines. And thus, these persons may, may increasingly rely on the internet for social interactions. Uh, the agency cited certain research that indicates uh, an increased reliance on the internet as a result of social isolation can render affected individuals being more susceptible to financial abuse and fraud victimization. The agencies also provided the following tips to investors to help avoid this fraud. Number one, to seek advice from trusted entities and conducting additional research prior to making any kind of investment. Being aware of common indicators of senior exploitation, such as new overly protective friends or caregivers, uh, providing financial account passwords or the control of finances to new friends or partners, the em emerging reluctance to discuss financial matters, or a sudden or unexplained shift in spending habits or beneficiary designations. Some other red flags that they identified included unregistered or unlicensed sellers, promises of a high rate of return without any risk involved, the pressure to invest quickly, and financial professionals with questionable backgrounds. Finally, they suggested maintaining communication with socially isolated individuals, informing them of common scams and red flags for fraud, and contacting state securities regulators if suspicious or possible senior financial exploitation appears to be occurring. As we move into the interview portion of today's show, we're going to actually harken back to some of the early episodes of the podcast where we talked about one of the goals of the podcast is to be a, a personal masterclass for the securities, legal and compliance professional. And to be a true master, you can't just know the black and white technical rule, but rather you have to know how to address the challenges that we all face as professionals, even outside of the technical rulemaking. That there's this whole other part of our roles as chief compliance officers, as legal practitioners in this space that that encapsulates how we do our job. And one of the things that strikes me as being critically important is to have, you know, the goal is to be able to improve the quality of the profession, again, of the securities, legal and compliance professional, and to improve the quality of life for the professional. And so this thing that separates compliance from other jobs and other even roles in the industry is that, you know, it's not just the knowledge of, uh, of technically what I'm supposed to do. It's the application of those rules. We have to be able to not just understand them, but, but be able to apply them practically. And so one of the things that, that is critically important for all of us is we face really difficult challenges in our roles as chief compliance officers is how to balance stress, how to balance the risk that we have to entertain on a daily, if not hourly <laughs> basis in our different roles to help guide us through some of those challenges and how we can best navigate them. We have the pleasure of bringing in a uh, former NSCP board member and current chief compliance officer of CBRE Clarion Securities, Rob Tall. In his role at CBRE, uh, Rob leads the compliance and risk management program uh, for a global listed equities investment manager specializing in real, real asset real asset companies and managing assets for institutional clients and funds globally. 
But Rob isn't just, I mean, what makes Rob such a great guest for this topic, it's both because he is a chief compliance officer, but that's not his only role. In addition to serving as the CCO of a major financial services firm, he's also an author, speaker, and creator of the Path2 program. And the Path2 program, and I'll let Rob, well, this will certainly come out throughout some of his interview today, but he's really passionate about helping high-achieving professionals like chief compliance officers and compliance officers and legal practitioners get unstuck personally and professionally and find the best path to their own happiness, fulfillment, and success. And you know, we're really, really excited that you're here with us today, Rob. Really uh, stoked to get into the conversation about how to manage stress, stress and risk. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Really appreciate it, and I uh, love being here. So one of the things that we're hoping to kind of accomplish on today's today's show, you know, there there are certain stressors and demands uh, that just really go hand in hand, I think, with with being a compliance professional, with really practicing in this space and, and being in this space. And it can lead to personal and career burnout. I think if not managed correctly, one of the reasons is because of the the overwhelming, you know, stress I think that a lot of us really feel on on a day-to-day basis. I wanted to chat with you a little bit because uh, I know this is a, a, an issue that you've done a lot of research on and and spoken about at length. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, the 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 cause and the impact of stress and and in in particular kind of the, the fallacy of, of stress um, when it comes to you know being busy. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, it's actually a great question. So for a number of years, you know, I, I had the mindset that stress was an indication of working towards success that, you know, and, and it's and it, it supported culturally, it's supported through all our institutions. It's the idea of if you're actually exhibiting stress and affected by stress, you must be doing something correct because you're more likely to be successful. And it was almost like a like an equation that was consequential or, or sequential where it was if you invest if you if you invest in a situation where you become stressed out, that will then lead to success. And then success will then lead to whatever the emotional rewards are you want. And if you think about it, like a lot of the legends that we idolize, whether that's like Rocky or Cinderella or whatever, it's the idea that like, hey, life is miserable. And then there needs to be some sort of effort or some sort of stress that then allows for some event to happen and then everything is better. And so it could be no different than earning good grades in school. Hey, you got to get good grades if you want good opportunities. So you need to be stressed to get good grades. Like school isn't about fun. It's about getting your grades. And same thing with your job. Your job is about putting food on the table or providing for yourself or getting a vacation, saving for retirement. And so I, I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And, and mm-hmm. it's to the point where we even, like as a culture, we idolize people that have stressful jobs. Like we look at that and think that's admirable. So just a simple statement of like, well, it's not neuro, you know, it's not brain surgery. Well, brain surgery, we all agree is stressful because it's very, you know, it's very high touch. It's very, you know, the outcome is very critical. Well, we admire that. So it just kind of fit where it was like, if I was stressed, um, that was an indication that I was moving in the right direction. And so I subscribe to that. And I, I think a lot of people do. And, and it's like glorified, right? Like the mm-hmm. person who has an easy job and isn't stressed out, we kind of look down at them. We're like, eh, it must be nice life on easy street. And so it's, it's you know, the more you're looking at your phone and, and cursing the emails coming in 24 hours a day, 
you feel like you're you're working towards something. Sure. And I, I very much appreciate that that insight. Uh, I do also. I would say that that is one hundred percent a pervasive, you know, belief that many people share. I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan fan at all, but it reminds me of, you know, the episodes where George Costanza wants his boss and everybody at work to think he's busy. So anytime somebody's walking past his office, all he does is make himself look like he's frustrated or really stressed, and he's. <laughs> And it, yeah. he does he does this the whole time. And so everybody at, you know, in the Yankees organization thinks that George is the hardest working guy because he just looks stressed all the time. So talk to me then a little bit about the causes of stress and some of the impacts of stress. So we understand that, you know, certainly there is going to be stress in, in this fallacy that maybe the more stress I take on, the better I'm doing or that, you know, the, the more I'm ultimately working towards something. You know, where do you see some of those causes coming from some of the impacts of that stress. And, and we'll, this will be kind of common throughout our conversation, but, but certainly I think the role of chief compliance officer or, you know, general counsel, certain people that are practicing in this space would, would probably feel that even more so than maybe other types of jobs that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think to, to set up the discussion, the first thing I want to distinguish is between effort, which is like you stress, which is positive stress, and then stress which is what I'm going to call painful effort, like unnecessarily painful. And so what triggers that painful effort, that stress, really comes down to, to two things. And the first thing is the emotional attachment to the objective or the goal that we're working toward. And so that happens because, it, again, in our society, we're actually taught work first, play later. And so it doesn't really, like your happiness is always considered to be secondary to success. Achieve success, then you become happy. And if you think about it, the whole retirement system is set up that way, right? So save for retirement because then you get to do the things you want. That's the entire structure we come up through. And so this idea that we take emotional goals and kind of, you know, subordinate them to, to objective goals. So what happens is, if we have unmet emotional needs, whether that's a sense of belonging, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of value, or getting to actually do the stuff we truly love, like in our heart of hearts, what happens is we search for proxies and then work, especially in a high achiever population, people that are used to being high achievers. It's not uncommon to take an emotional reward or an emotional goal and attach it to an objective goal, right? So if I want a sense of validation or acceptance, which for me was a major issue, I then attach it to my professional accomplishments. I attach it to promotions, to income, to impact at the firm. You know, when you get your little good boy pat on the head at work, it feels great. Well, it feels right. great because there's a deficiency someplace. So what happens is now this objective goal of Rob, be a good compliance officer or make sure that we have this system in place. Suddenly, it's no longer about the system. It's about, wow, if I can't get this done, there's actually going to be a pain, an emotional pain to me because I'm not satisfying something. So then what happens is, and, and we're compliance professionals. So we, there's almost like three conditions that we live in, in all situations. The first one is we always have a lack of resources. Nobody has the amount of people, time, or money to do their job effectively. <laughs> right. 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 And, yeah. it's, it's, and, and, and the second thing is we have unreasonable expectations. 
and it's this idea of, hey, I'm only going to give you enough resources to get a C on the exam, but you need to get a hundred on the exam. Totally unreasonable. But as compliance people and legal professionals, that's what we operate on. We have limited resources and no ability to actually be perfect, but the expectation is you need to be perfect. And then the third thing is, oh, by the way, this is going to be a radically uncertain environment at all times. You never know where things are going to come from. So those three things are are just kind of the essential elements of our environment. Those all are barriers to objective goals, right? So if my goal is to maintain a, a, a good compliance program at the firm and make sure there are no compliance issues, well, I'm already set up. To, to not be able to do that to 100% ability because I don't have the resources. It's it's unreasonable in terms of the scope and I never know what's happening because I'm in a reactionary role. Therefore, I can't accomplish my goal. And so all of my effort is painful and it's painful because in the behind all of this is this massive hole about these emotional needs and rewards I have that just keep getting shunted to the back of I'll get to that eventually. I will I will be happy in retirement. And if you think about it, a lot of the mentality we have, it's almost, and this goes to get the glorification of stress, the idea of things are just hard right now. Like we adopt that as a mantra. Like I just got to get through this part. This quarter sucks. Next quarter, I'll be, it'll feel better. And we do that every quarter. And then we mm-hmm. wonder why we either burn out or, you know, we blink and 15 years have gone by and we're like, wow, I've done nothing that I want to do as a person. So all of that, that that kind of is like a diorama of where stress is coming from. And what happens is that unmet emotional need as a result of not having the objective goals being accomplished, like in the way that we want them to, that's really where the pain of stress, that's where it converts from effort to painful stress. That's where it moves into the impact. Yeah, let's, I mean, one fantastic Fantastic insights there, you know, limited resources, unrealistic expectations, <laughs> uncertain environment, man, what a dream, what a dream job. <laughs> Where do I, how, as a, as a young kid, that's what I always wanted, right? right. I mean, like, and, and let's up the ante. We'd like you to wear a target. So that way, when something is wrong, we want somebody to shoot at. Right. And so it's like that, so that when you think about like, hey, compliance people are skittish and they're kind of anxious. It's like, no, really? I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, no, that's that's the that's a fantastic breakdown. And 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 again, I think one that many many of our listeners would certainly feel that that pain point acutely. I, we we were so happy earlier this year. We had the great fortune to to talk with SEC Commissioner Purse about uh, CCO liability, and and she offered some really just great, great commentary on that front. And, and I think really, you know, is representative, I hope, of, of the larger industry themes that, you know, continuing to kind of want CCOs to be partners, right? And, and what else to hopefully take away some of that uh, bullseye. But for certain, it's there. I mean, it has to be, right? It's there no matter what because of the role, because of what we're tasked with doing. So you're right. There's actually, it's a fourth thing, limited resources, um, unrealistic expectations, often because many many firms might still fi- find, I, you know, Craig Wantanabe and another guest on a different podcast earlier this year was talking about how really good compliance is actually a value add. Right. But but unfortunately, there are still 
some in the industry who view compliance or or legal right as solely a cost center <laughs> and yeah. so that's where the unrealistic expectations and wanting to not provide resources and so that's that's really helpful and appreciate how you then kind of segued nicely into how that impacts us right because then we're not meeting our goal and then we start to feel that pain of well i haven't gotten a promotion yet i'm i'm don't feel like maybe my, my value is being recognized in compensation or in other ways so talk to me because that that feeling that pain that you know it be, can become apparent can become a result of some of the things that might be happening at work. I went onto onto your website and was reading your blog and really appreciated uh, some of the thoughtful some of the thoughtful remarks you had there. And I'm I'm going to read you a quote, and I, I would love to kind of get get your thoughts on it or maybe have you expound on it a little bit because um, it talks about I think that that impact of stress. You said that the, the feeling of being stuck or trapped in circumstances that breeds frustration, hopelessness, and terribly rash decision-making is largely the result of an inability to solve a problem creatively, given the particular situation. I felt stuck for years in a profession and family structure where I did not have the freedom or support to pursue my emotional goals. I was in a crucible, and the more frustrated I was, the more stressed I became, and the more pressure and the more the pressure and temperature rose. I couldn't find the solution I needed for my circumstances because I was too stressed to think creatively about how to address my needs. So talk to me a little bit about about some of those feelings that you were having. And, and I guess in a way, just to, so that others who may be experiencing them know that it's not just them that, that might be feeling this. Yeah. And well, that, and that's a great point is I actually based on the people that I know and, and a lot of the studies I've looked at, this is universal. And so this is where stress, the, the difference of stress in, in what happens to us. So stress is actually a form of a threat response. And so what happens is that if you going back to that dynamic of, hey, we have certain barriers that prevent us from accomplishing objective goals. And if we can't satisfy an objective goal, we can't satisfy an emotional goal. All of that on paper sounds like it should not trigger a threat response. The problem is when we have unmet emotional needs or unmet emotional goals, are we actually process it from a system perspective, like a, a, a sympathetic uh sympathetic nervous system perspective as an actual threat to our well-being. And so what happens is that stress is actually a form of fight, flight, or freeze. And what happens is, so we're stuck in this situation at work, right? So you have these unreasonable expectations. You constantly feel under the gun. You don't have, you don't even have allies internally in the firm the way that you want or whatever that dynamic is. I know for me that that's absolutely, I took a global promotion and was working with an affiliated company and it completely exacerbated a lot of the, what we would consider negative structures. So I was living in a constant fight or flight state. And what happened, there's, there's two things that happen. The first thing is you have reduced faculties when you are operating in a threat response. And the reason you have reduced faculties is because your primary, the, the nervous system's primary goal is survival. It's not thriving. And so when it's survival, you lose two critical things for, for creative problem solving. The first thing is access to, to all of your memory capabilities, your lessons learned, so because if you think about it in a threat response, if I'm being pursued by a lion, it really is entirely irrelevant about 
what lessons I've learned in life, because it, right. it doesn't matter if I get eaten alive. So right. it's like, how about you outrun this thing? And then we'll worry about accessing lessons learned. Yeah. So, so now I'm operating without all of my resources. The second thing is that not, I also can't come up with ideas. I can't think creatively because again, I'm only focused on one issue at hand, outrun the predator. And so the idea of how do I solve this problem in a really novel way, I just can't think that. Nope, I can't think of any situation where when I've been completely stressed, I had a brilliant idea. More often than not, it's a rash decision. When I have my most brilliant thoughts, chances are, and that this kind of sounds silly, chances are I'm either, you know, borderline almost unconscious or I'm half naked, if not totally naked, because it's in the shower. It's after I work out. It's right when I wake up. It's when it's when dopamine and distraction are really high in my head that like, yep. boom, creative yep. thoughts happen. Totally. And it's like, ah, that's how I solve that problem. That yep. doesn't happen under when and, and so under stress, unlike an animal in the wild, when you're pursued by a predator, one there's two outcomes, right? You're eaten alive or you escape. But what it allows you to do is deactivate stress. Well, when my stressors are a lack of resources, you know, unreasonable expectations in, in an un, you know unexpected environment or, or a risky environment, those don't tire. They don't go away. They live constantly in my head. And so it, it's really difficult for us to deactivate out of stress to then solve those problems. For me, the, the tools that I would use to deactivate when I was working at a, at a, glo at a global level, my average workday was like 16 to 18 hours a day and it was six days a week. And so, and that set, and so that seventh day, you know, it was like, I was traumatized. And so it was just like getting ready for the next day. Right. And so like, you can't, you can't come up with ideas, but what happened was all the ways that I would deactivate from stress. And, and there's really four things that, that, you know, are really key to kind of maintaining resiliency and deactivation. None of those were there and it really basic stuff, right? So your diet, right? Diet sucked because there wasn't time to take care of myself. Exercise was out personal relationships were out, healthy habits were out, all those things. So in this constant state of stress, there's nothing to do but begin to, to actually deteriorate in terms of what's going on. Because your system's not designed to live in a constant state of stress. And it has like a contagion effect, right? It becomes like a radiation where like every place you go, you're you're either emitting stress or you or you bring the stress with you into that environment. It would be mm -hmm. as if I was chased by a lion and brought the lion back to my house <laughs> and was like, hey, welcome home. And so then the whole family gets stressed, right? Or the whole office gets stressed. So th that's that's kind of a long issue. That's kind of a long explanation of when living in that stress, you're stuck in what happens is the things you need to solve or in the situations I've seen. The problems we need to solve, we can't solve because the problems are causing pain. And it's like you need to deactivate the stress in order to solve the, the problem, which is causing the stress. Right. No, I excellent, excellent points. And I, one of the things that you mentioned that that really, I mean, strikes a chord with me is that ability to think creatively to solve problems. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. It is very, very rare that even though I would say, you know, over time, of course, we all get more practiced at at trying to deal with stress. I can't think of any example where 
a creative solution that I found, I solved when I was in the stressful situation. It's always later. It's always when I'm doing something non-stressful and then boom, a light bulb goes off and you think, oh my goodness, that that's how I can solve that. Or, or that's, that's a resource that I can bring in to help me there. That'll help me solve that or, you know, whatever it is. So that, that I appreciate that a lot. One of the other things you mentioned is of course, you know, okay. So trying to deactivate some of that stress. And I think one of the ways that folks certainly in our role uh, roles as chief compliance officers, general counsels, other legal practitioners in the space, the way, you know, that we can start to deactivate some of that stress is by learning, I think, a little bit about how to interpret and address some of the risks that are involved in our job. And being able to learn and interpret and address those risks, you know, hopefully will help decrease some of that anxiety, some of that stress. And so there's this idea about, you know, is it possible for folks serving in the role of a chief compliance officer, in the role of a general counsel, in the role of a legal practitioner working in the space to get comfortable with risks? Like how, how can we get comfortable with this? How can we learn to interpret and address those in a ways that, that might help decrease anxiety? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so risks are so fundamental to us. And what's interesting, what, what I find is that because we do it on a day-to-day basis, and it's like constantly on our mind, it also infiltrates our personal life. And so the, the model that I use for the idea of risk evaluation actually is, is, is kind of a fundamental one. So it applies in the professional sense and in the personal sense. And there's two models I'll talk to. And the first model is um, worst case scenario assessment. So, you know, as typically a compliance or legal professional tends to be naturally risk adverse. Uh, We really appreciate rules and we tend to appreciate risk at a level that most people don't. Now, the, the rule appreciation is actually what often keeps us stuck in stress. Because if we subscribe to the idea that stress equals success as a rule, then we kind of, you know, don't mind following that rule. Right. And so right. Yeah. We, we're willing to accept it. But yeah. when it comes when it comes to risk aversion, we think about worst case scenario, right? Like what's what's the possible outcome of this? So somebody brings a new product to us, a new client to us, a new business practice. The first thought is what are, what's all the hair on this thing? So, and when we think through that, when we worst case scenario stuff, we're looking at a tail event. And and when we think about it, we start to then plan against or take action against that tail event. But that is only one possible outcome of a variety of outcomes. So if I were to remove this out of a work context and put it into a personal life context, let's make it as simple as... I'm considering changing your firms, right? I'm going to, I'm going to move firms because I, I, I think I can get a better job at firm B than, it, than being at firm A. And so when I think that through, I go through that process of, well, what if they don't have the same growth pattern? What if their client base is riskier? What if I have to move my family? What if they're, you know, my pay isn't as much? So I go through all these what ifs and then I get to a spot where at some point there's this threshold decision in worst case scenario. And it becomes binary. It's not worth it or it's worth it. When we have that thing, we then make a decision based on just simply the probability of one possible outcome out of an infinite number of outcomes. 
So we do the same thing in our job. We look at that worst case scenario and say, I can't sign off on this. I can sign off on that. And so that that is no different than if I bought a lottery ticket. And the more I thought about winning the lottery, the more convinced I was it was going to happen. So by focusing on the worst case scenario, I start to convince myself, yeah, it's more likely that that's what's going to happen. Because that's that's, the only thing I'm thinking about. If I think about winning the lottery, I start thinking about, hey, my ticket's probably a winner. But two things are different there. When I think I might have a winner in my hands, I don't go spend the money before I actually win. (laughs) But in a worst case scenario, I actually avoid doing something before any bad thing happens. So it's this idea of, oh, I just got scared to inaction. I'm no longer going to sign off on this. I'm sorry. I'm now the no person. I'm the no police. No, we can't do this. Yep. And so that that's a negative thing. The second thing that happens is by focus, again, a lottery scenario, I focus on the positive outcome. It doesn't happen. I'm actually disappointed because I invested time thinking about it. Well, as compliance people, the same thing happens on, on the, the, the worst case scenario side. It's like I invest all this time thinking about it. And then there's this like deflation when it's like, oh, I was wrong. Sure. It's this weird emotional attachment because that's all we thought about. Yeah. So worst case scenario, from a risk perspective, worst case scenario is helpful to simply identify the tail, but it's not helpful to make a decision. Now, the other analogy I'll use to make the decision is this analogy that I've seen in a behavior of, of certain types of people not normally compliance people, but it's what I call deep water survivors. And deep water survivors are the kind of people that if you were at the beach, they're the, they, they seem like the crazy person that swims way past out the breakers. And you're just like, where are you going? Like you're going to drown. And what I, what I found in people that I've met that are like that, they have an equation for risk, which basically says, my risk of a problem exists in the first 10 feet of water. Everything else below that is irrelevant. If I solve the top 10 feet of water, I'm not drowning. So it doesn't matter how deep the water is. And so that got me thinking about, well, in risk solving, I know a lot of, from my professional perspective, it's I want to understand every risk involved in this thing. And so you get so wrapped up in the details that you forget the fundamentals, which is if I do these core things, at the top, if I, and again, if I just rely on compliance principles, not necessarily the specifics of the rules, but if I know my principles and I can nail my principles down, then I shouldn't have to worry about how deep the risk is. If I can do the basics, I will survive. It might not be pretty, but I'll survive. And so from a temperament perspective, that allows me to say, look, Rob, even though the boss might want perfection or I might want perfection for myself, The key is survive in advance. So if I can get the basics down and stay in that top 10 feet of water, we're good. It doesn't matter how much risk we take on. If we can stay in the top 10 feet, it's only only when you're not in the top 10 feet that it becomes a problem. Yeah, man, um, I am so like both of those responses, like in in both scenarios that you describe, I, those resonate so much with me. There is so much truth there. It's so funny. I mean, in the first example that you gave, one of the things that sparked in my head was this idea that 
you know, compliance officers, legal practitioners, general counsel, that when they, they're often the bearers of bad news. I mean, they can be right when, when we and there are, you know, look, we love to be able to think creatively. I think I think there's this uh, thought probably from others in the industry that that, you know, compliance officers and legal that, that, that they're all black and white, right? That they don't think creatively. I don't think that's true at all. I think a lot of folks, I think the, the good ones certainly try to think creatively outside the box to find a workable solution while still staying within the guardrails. But but what you described to me is like, so sometimes we have to deliver that bad news of like, we can't do something. Or if we do something, there is this risk to your point about like that the, we're going with the tail first. Okay, what is the worst? This is what could happen. Then... Because as you describe, look, we were just doing our job describing what the tale was, because if you're going to go into this activity, you should at least know what could happen. Then it doesn't happen. And then the leadership at the firm might come back to you and they might say, see, I told you it wouldn't happen. You didn't even have to worry about it. You know what I mean? And so you're stuck in this like, well, wait a minute. I just lived with this risk and this stress for so long. Then you do have some of that deflation. You're, you're like, it's almost like that. That's why, honestly, you know, look, um, Winston Churchill, I think, is is attributed with this quote of never let a good crisis go to waste or, or something of that ilk. Right. So that's why on the flip side, when something bad does happen, it can often be an opportunity for chief compliance officers and other folks to say, OK, see. So like now that this has happened, I think it demonstrates what could be a bad case scenario. We need to do these things to fix it. On the flip side, when things don't happen, people look at you as the CCO or the legal practitioner or whatever, and they say, you know, you were worried about nothing, basically. Exactly. And think about what that does. And so for from a mental health perspective, think about what that does for our like sense of identity and self-worth. Right. It's this idea of like, and, and so I'll, I'll share with you a story that that somebody, an executive said to me years and years and years ago, and it never left my my psyche. And it was in a very similar situation where, you know, it was that you get accused of being chicken little, of, of calling stuff out and nothing happens. And the, the feedback I got was, and it's a classic line, it's just because you're necessary doesn't mean you're wanted. And so like that was that really put a nice bow on what what my mental perspective was <laughs> of self-worth. And so what's interesting is so you live in a firm, right, that or, or an organization that looks at compliance as you're you're always going to burst our bubble. And when you tell us and when we actually listen to you and nothing happens, we think you're just kind of, you know, you're, you're just crying wolf. So, and then you're stressed out at work. So you go home and most of us unfortunately bring stress home. And so people at home aren't happy to see you either. So you end up in the situation where like nobody's right. happy right. to see you. Yeah. And it yeah. like has it has an impact on you. Oh, oh, oh for sure. It absolutely has has an impact on you. The the other thing and I, I wanted to circle back is again, I, I really think both of the scenarios you you painted were were just totally fitting for people that are serving in these types of roles is the 10 feet of water right and and it is it can be easy at times because look we talked about it at the top right we can't completely get rid of the fourth element that there is a potential target on our back that right that there is both personal and professional liability that that is tied to the role that in mind it can be really easy as the water gets deeper right as you get faced with more and more challenging type 
uh, questions and situations. Some things may make you feel uncomfortable if a, if a certain activity or a new business initiative is doing certain things that you think, you know, are, are bumping up against the lines a little bit. And so that water's getting deeper and it can be easy and for you to really take on a lot of that stress about just trying to survive. And, and especially with the personal and professional liability attached to it, your, your point is so well taken that if you are a, a chief compliance officer, if you are a general counsel and you are running a good program, right? You are running a good compliance program. You are doing the right things. You are making sure that the firm has internal controls in place and you're making sure that that basic blocking and tackling is getting done. That's that first 10 feet of water, right? Like, like the other stuff, certainly it may not be perfect, as you said, right? It may, it may, may not always be pretty, but at least you're doing the right thing. Now, clearly when, when that stuff starts to break down, well, then you got a problem, right? Then, then you yeah. really got to go a different direction, escalate or get out of that position. But as long as you can continue to do that, that basic blocking and tackling that you're running, you know, an effective program, I think you could take at least a certain level of confidence or peace of mind that it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to work out. Definitely. And and it's just one of the practices that I got into, unfortunately, out of necessity, but but it was a good tool, was when there were situations where, it, it, you know, you get presented with a topic that feels like, hey, this needs to get addressed eventually. Like, hey, we're going to launch this new product. We're going to go into this new market. We're going to do this thing. Figure it out. And so you take it away and, and you start to think about it. And you're like, all right, I eventually have to solve this. And what happens is, it, it, it gets get kind of put out there and it starts to swell to the amount of space you give it. And so I'm going to borrow what Parkinson's law, essentially, or Parkinson's principle, which is essentially the idea that work expands to fill the space you give it. So I've got this risk or this thing that needs to get addressed that I'm not sure. It, it really isn't that, you know, whatever it is, I put it out there and I'm like, I got to deal with that. Oh, how am I going to deal with it? How, and I stress about it. It now gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So the practice I got into was, they're, they need me to solve this right now. The SEC is in the other room. That was the mental framework I said. The SEC is in the other room. Sure. How do I explain what this is? And that forced me to stay in the 10 feet of water. So what it did was it took this massive concept and it compressed it down to the smallest space and said, can you solve it in this tiny window? And if I could, by just relying on the principles of compliance and say, well, if my principles are in place, let me make sure that I can do these things, then I should be able to say, yes, this is manageable. And that was really helpful to make not just quick decisions, but to, to almost turn down the volume on the stress related to that topic. And then mm -hmm. I could give it the space that it deserved. Mm -hmm. But for that immediate time frame, it was, this just landed on your plate. What is the answer right now? And instead of the, well, I got to think about it and it depends. It's like, no, 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 no. What is it right now? And so that was a practice that I would use for myself. And when you, when you, you know, put the fear of the, the examiners are on the other side of the wall. What is it like that? It, it changes the dynamic and how you see the problem. Right. 
Right. Yeah, no, there, I, I'm laughing a little bit as you're describing that situation again. I, 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 I feel like you were a fly on the wall in some of the <laughs> other situations that have presented themselves to, to me throughout, throughout the years. But no, that's definitely another one. And I agree with you. I think, um, when I was in law school and I, I did moot court and during like the oral, so, you know, it's a competition based on oral advocacy. And one of the things they tell you going into it is like, you know, you got to, when you're doing an argument or you're doing a cross argument, even you need to find like one thing that like you can continue to like hang your hat on or go back to kind of like a safe harbor type situation for, for us as compliance officers and general counsel, I've thought about that, which is that, if I'm running a really good program and like you said, the basic principles are there and then using those basic principles, if the activity in question has some hair on it, right, or whatever else, but I can still get to a, an answer that I can substantiate, right, yeah. an answer that I can go back to that says, okay, it's not going to be violative of some of those basic compliance principles that are going to, you know, really kind of upset the apple cart of my compliance program. That's a good place. Now I know that it's not going to do that. Okay. Now I can take the time to then figure out, okay, how do we get from A to B in the most effective and efficient manner possible in a way that's going to be best for the business and best from a compliance perspective? Yeah. So you've, you've already given us a couple really great techniques, I think, to help manage some of that stress and to certainly uh, interpret and address some of the risks that can hopefully help alleviate some of that stress. What are, you know, <laughs> to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, limited resources, unrealistic expectations, uncertain environment, and then you add on there a little personal professional liability. <laughs> how do we survive this? You know what I mean? Like what, what are the other way? Cause clearly we're all surviving it uh, in some way and, and, and at least uh, doing our, our utmost to, to do it. What are some other tips or tricks or other, you know, best practices, recommendations that you would suggest to help people, help keep people sane and grounded <laughs> as yeah. they're, as they're serving in these, in these different types of positions. Right. So, so what I found for me is, so when we're stressed out, you know, we're, we're running on depleted resources. And, and not only that, there's a burnout factor. And it's like, it's a question of what are you willing to lose in the process of burning out? And, and we have to, we have to be willing to step out of that situation. And part of it might feel irresponsible because the key is to get out of our head and then to get into in a space where we can actually address either emotional needs and desires or to address our own wellness to then reapproach those problems with creativity and with all of our faculties in place. So the first thing is that, that I tend to think about is, is a very linear perspective, which is what are the emotional goals that I'm tying to, to my job? And what is it that I can actually decouple from my job and just start addressing right away? Like for me, I'm, I'm a creative and artistic person. And so the idea, if I were to sit there and say, hey, on Saturday afternoon, I would like to just sit down and draw or write creatively all afternoon as a way to nurture myself. But my email inbox is still, you know, bursting at the seams and I'm still getting texts over the weekend that say, hey, is that IMA done and stuff? If I don't have enough boundaries on myself to say, no, 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 this is my time because I can do those things better once I service myself. More often than not, because what happens, we go back to that rule of work first, play later. 
And so it's the idea of accelerate those emotional needs first, even if that's anything from like belonging in a community, spending time with family, whatever. But the other piece is that that doesn't act like that solves the root issue. If I can't solve the root issue, I have to learn how to deactivate my stress. And the, the biggest thing for us, it, it, because the profession we're in is so it's so intellectual and intangible, we have to get out of our heads. And what we need to do is get into like a somatic experience. We have to get back into our body and let our body inform our sympathetic nervous system that we're not actually in threat, right? So I can't like when, and then there's a couple things to do. First thing is like exercise is one of those things. And it's exercising, not with the intent of thinking about the problem. It's being totally present during exercise because what happens is now your brain isn't thinking about the threat. Your brain is actually evaluating your entire physical system. It's saying, wow, your breathing is this, you're feeling this, the stress is like this, like the strenuousness of this exercise, which is why runners get to high, like you have like a runner high or a yoga high. Right. Um, And it's in those moments that we get out of our head and, and we deactivate stress because our body says we might be working hard, but this is not threat hard. This is just activity. So that's a big thing. Other activities like like yoga and massage are really good for that in terms of getting us back into our physical and getting back into our somatic system. And also it's just a simple practice of grounding exercises. Grounding exercises can vary from, you know, following your breath for a period of time or doing a body scan or even doing like a five sensory check in where you, you know, you look around the room, identify everything that's red. And then, okay, what are the things that I can hear right now? What, and by doing that, what's, what's interesting in that you convert physical input to your body to inform your nervous system about whether or not you're at threat. So if I can actually sit there and say, well, my breathing is regulated, I can actually hear things around me, and my body is processing this from a physiological perspective that says, yeah, there's nothing that's going to eat you alive. Like it really does bring down my stress. Yeah, and now, yeah. I can, and it's not like I do this once and then voila, I can do all this magic. It's a, it's a consistent practice of this and finding time to do it. So one of the things that I've recently adopted, just I've been studying a lot on positive intelligence. And one of the things that they advocate for is just sim- something as simple as activating your sense of touch, like every two to three hours. Uh, and it could just be, you know, handling something you don't normally handle, like a rock or a feather or something and actually processing the sensation from your from your sense of touch because it deactivates where, where you're locked in your head because now it's saying, hey, body, you're smarter than the brain. Tell us what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. That's a, doing that consistently is a great way to get us out of our heads. So anything that gets us back into our body. And then the second piece is, I'll say, or I guess the third piece technically, is um, sometimes people, you know, we're, we're heady people. We like to live in ivory towers and think about academic crap. Um, sometimes we don't like to think about our body a whole lot. And so the other tool that works is what I'll call an inner examiner. And the inner examiner basically takes the opposite perspective. They basically interrogate you on your own thoughts. So if I sit there and say, I, I don't have enough resources to solve this. They get to play examiner and say, really? Now tell me about that. And what happens is by expressing all of your own narrative about the problem set in front of you, 
it exhausts the narrative. So now what right. happens is you talk about this lion that's chasing you to the nth degree, and now it's done, it's processed. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it comes down because the inner examiner is challenging every aspect of that. And yeah. they're saying, really? How do you know that's true? Why do you believe that's going to be the case? How do you know that's going to happen? Just mm-hmm. like an examiner would. And what ha- it completely exhausts the, the, the thought loop. And when you're done, you actually feel less stressed because mm-hmm. you've gone through the entire processing of it. It's no longer the lion chasing you. It's now on you. It's eaten you. It spit you back out and moved mm-hmm. on. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad. Now I can actually solve it. Yeah. No, those, those are great points. And there's a couple kind of items in, in what you said that I really, really like a lot and that I think many of our listeners would appreciate, which is that many of these things they can do on their own, right? Or, or they can share with a, a loved one or a friend. You know, the idea of finding your breath is so important. My, my wife is, is really into yoga. Um, and, and, and she, was telling me as she was going through some of her like yoga instruction and stuff like that, that how important that was. And certainly I've even started to adopt that a little bit, but it is just essentially in many ways, a realization of and a finding of the senses that you have and looking around you or breathing in or smelling certain things or doing other things where then it does give you a sense of self and presence in that moment. So like for us and what you're talking about with, you know, I'm not being chased by a lion right now. I'm not, I'm not um, needing to go to kick in into survival mode. That's going to help lower that um, and put you in a state where you might then, you know, to get back to one of your earlier points, be able to start to think a little bit more creatively about how to solve a situation versus when you're in the super stressful moment, it's incredibly hard to try to think creatively about how to problem solve. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about how we're rewarded as compliance and legal professionals, our whole job is based on imagining the possible threats. So it's not what is actually the problem. It's what do you think could happen? Oh, so I want you to focus on boogeymen all the time. (laughs) So bringing us back into like ourselves is back is like a reality test, right? It's like, oh, okay, that could happen the same way the earth could crack in two, (laughs) but that's not currently happening. Let me get back into my current state. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Rob, man, I am so, so appreciative of you coming on today to share all of those different insights. And, and I really, really want to, to have you back on the show at some point, because I just think this message for so many people that are serving in these, in these types of roles that are serving as a general counsel, serving as a legal practitioner or a chief compliance officer that is dealing with the stress of having to work with limited resources, unrealistic expectations in an uncertain environment, it can be so incredibly difficult and how important this is for them to be ultimately become the best professionals that, that they can be. So thank you for that. Before I let you go, we're, we're going to get you out of here on maybe something a little bit more fun uh, that we like <laughs> to do. So where is, uh, or maybe I'll frame it like this. What is one thing whether it's a certain restaurant that you want to go eat at, whether it's a concert or live music, or what's one thing that you're really, really looking forward to doing when the pandemic and any related restrictions are lifted and you can go do that thing again? 
for for me personally, it's it's training jujitsu. So I haven't been able to train jujitsu, which is it's essentially wrestling with another person, which it you know <laughs> is the exact opposite of social distancing of what you would want to do, right? Yeah, Correct. Right. Yeah. And so like there, there's a num there's a number of organizations that are and 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 you know academies that are still going. Um, I personally have self selected out. I'm a high risk person. And so it's, it's one of those things where yeah. high risk, meaning <laughs> high risk to exposure. Not I take high risks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, right. I get so, that. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, that, that's something I'm personally, because again, for, for my mental and emotional well-being, it's a great thing and it's, it's yeah. great for problem solving. It's great, but right. uh, it's yeah. this environment is so mm. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and to think that now we're coming up on a year, essentially that's crazy. You, it's just completely amazing. crazy, completely crazy. Well, thank you again so, so much for taking time out of your day to be with us today. This was enlightening and, and um, really appreciate all the thoughtful comments. Enjoy the upcoming days, weeks and months here. I hope you get to do jujitsu sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, and thanks again for coming on the show. We'll, we'll look to have you back. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. It's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. The final portion of today's show features another installment of the What's On My Mind segment. As a quick reminder for some new listeners, this segment will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on an issue affecting the investment management industry or some other relevant compliance topic. In today's episode of What's On My Mind, I'd like to talk about babies, but, but more specifically, newborn babies. You see, my, my lovely and talented wife recently gave birth to our second daughter. And in the lead up to that event, I constantly had people saying things to me like, better start banking sleep now, or, you know, you better rest while you can. But in, in what other facet of life does this make any sense? Look, I, I'm an English law and compliance nerd. Okay, the math and science thing waved bye-bye to me a long time ago. But if I'm going to train or prepare for a time period when I'm not going to be able to sleep much, but I still need to produce at a high level, I don't want to try and bank sleep. I mean, to use another activity, you don't you don't train to climb a mountain by trying to bank a bunch of sleep. You don't train to run a marathon by sitting on the couch. The, the fact is, the best way to train is to acclimate yourself as much as possible to the environment in which you will need to perform. So I guess in my case, right, I, I should have been prepping to get very little sleep, but continuing to pr perform at a high level. So now you're probably wondering, okay, that... That's great, and also maybe a little bit odd that I've thought so much about this. But trust me, there's a compliance analogy here, too. The fact is, running a compliance program is hard. And sometimes the idea of not opening up a new mock audit or performing additional compliance testing to assess internal controls feels right in the same way that you know, we can bank sleep or rest more now and worry about doing the compliance work when, when we need to down the road or when an examination comes up. But, but the fact is you don't get to the top of the compliance program mountain by not testing. Rather, you can test your compliance program so that when the regulators are ready to conduct an exam, you've already acclimated your firm as much as possible to the exact same environment in which it's going to need to perform at its best. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, 
CALFI, and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Rob Tall, for coming on the show today to share some of his invaluable insights into how we can best navigate the stress and anxiety that come along with serving in the role of a compliance officer. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. As a quick reminder, this is our final regular show of the season. Season two of the podcast will pick up sometime in mid to late April. The public version of the pod is actually going dark for a little while so that we can record and produce a master class miniseries on regulation best interest. This five-part podcast miniseries will include some of the leading experts in this space and will only be available to NSCP members. So if you're not already a member of the National Society of Compliance Professionals, make sure you join so you can continue to get access to that incredible masterclass content. In the meantime, let me just extend a big thank you to you, our listeners, that have made this first season such an amazing experience and such a pleasure to do. I promised in the introductory episode of the show that we would have fun together. And it's that together part. It's this community that has really made this first season so incredibly fantastic. Let's keep that momentum going because the fact is you, our audience, continue to make this show so much better. The more you talk to us, the more that you are on our show, the more that you tweet us, you ping us on LinkedIn, you email us, the smarter we all actually get. None of us alone are ever going to be as smart as all of us together. You can check us out on LinkedIn by searching Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 